This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the changing face of politics and justice. For politics, we turn to Venezuela. We'll tap the point of view of one of that country's leading political writers. And for justice, the trial of a former dictator in Guatemala. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. Paraguay's president, Frederico Franco, argued for the stability of his nation ahead of this month's presidential election during a conference in Washington, D.C. this week. Paraguay raised international concerns when its Senate impeached former President Fernando Lugo last June after linking him to violent land evictions. South American trade bloc Mercosur responded by suspending Paraguay's membership and calling the impeachment a constitutional coup or an express coup. Franco disputed that characterization. I have been arrested three times by the police for defending the freedom of the press and individual freedom. I never, under any circumstance, would have accepted the presidency of the republic if this would have been a coup d'etat. The Republic of Paraguay is a free, sovereign and independent country forever. Paraguay's presidential election will be held on April 21st. Venezuela's official election campaign began this week with interim president Nicolas Maduro racing against opposition leader Enrique Capriles Radonsky. Opinion polls give Maduro a lead between 11 to 20 percentage points over Capriles for the April 14th election. Maduro referred to the opposition party as heirs of Hitler, accusing its members of persecuting Cuban doctors in Venezuela as the Nazis persecuted Jews. Capriles a descendant of Polish Jews, called the statement intolerant and ignorant. Capriles' largest obstacle may be campaigning against the emotional memory of former President Hugo Chavez. Chavez died of cancer on March 5th. We'll have more on the Venezuelan elections later in this program. Cuban blogger Ioanni Sanchez received a joyous welcome on her first visit to Miami this week. Sanchez spoke at Florida International University to crowds of students, journalists, and Cuban exiles about the power of technology to spread democracy. Every day, you see the actions of activists and how the Internet influences the international community to listen after decades when no one listened. Now, the Internet helps us to explain to the world what is happening in our country. Sanchez also stood inside Miami's famed Freedom Tower and called members of the Cuban diaspora to unite with citizens living on the island to fight for a brighter future. Academic experts and members of Mexican civil society criticized the state of Mexico's democracy at a conference in Washington, D.C. this week. Critics took the opportunity to evaluate the Mexican government with the passing of the 120-day mark of the new administration of President Enrique Peña Nieto. Professor John Ackerman of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, or UNAM, said the new administration does not like the arguments that are sometimes necessary in democracies. Instead of debating things in Congress, yet which, yes, can be messy, can hold things up, can make things difficult, let's not do that. Let's work things out behind closed doors. 
Ackerman and other speakers at the conference cautioned that Peña Nieto's administration could mark a return to the anti-democratic methods of the past. Human rights activist Blanca Velasquez spoke at American University in Washington, D.C. this week about her work organizing labor unions in the Mexican garment industry. Zach Cohen has our story. Velasquez is the recipient of the prestigious Romero Award and the founder of El Centro de Apoyo al Trabajador, or the CAT, which translates as Help Center for Workers. Since 2001, the CAT has worked to defend workers' rights in factories called maquiladoras in the Mexican state of Puebla. Velasquez has received multiple death threats for forming the CAT. It is the first women's union of the garment industry in Mexico. Velasquez said women often face long work hours and subpar working conditions, all for low pay. They work more than 14 hours, and many men and women rotate shifts. And there are emotional testimonies from women who drug themselves to endure the excessive hours. The drugs are Coca-Cola and aspirin in order to endure two shifts. Velasquez also fights body image discrimination. She says factories often hire women based on their age and weight. I'm Zach Cohen for Latin Pulse in Washington, D.C. More than 50 people died in Argentina as torrential rains pummeled city streets and flooded neighborhoods, causing many to drown. A record 16 inches of rain fell on the city of La Plata, knocking out phone lines and power grids. More than six inches of rain fell in Buenos Aires in just two hours, which is the normal amount of rain Argentina receives in the entire month of April. Twenty people remain missing, and an estimated one million people do not have power. The Argentine government called for three days of national mourning. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. As we record our program this week, we're less than ten days from the snap elections in Venezuela to replace the late Hugo Chavez as president. Acting President Nicolás Maduro is representing Chávez's Socialist Party, and Governor Enrique Capriles Radonsky is the opposition's candidate. For perspective on the election, we reached out to Victor Amaya earlier this week in Caracas via Skype. Amaya covers politics for the Venezuelan newspaper Tal Qual. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Both candidates have been already in the streets, already doing a um, meetings with the people and uh, and these activities like uh, showing their proposals and showing their their differences. Now we are starting uh, this second stage, I believe. That's like the proposal stage. Both candidates has to uh, present their proposals, uh, their offers, okay, specifically. And we're going to be seen in, in a few days, like I believe it's going to be the third stage, because is the, the confrontation uh, and the more uh, contrast between one another. Because this is a very, very short campaign. It's going to be uh, only 10 days, because the election is the uh, um, uh, uh, 14th. Uh, let's remember that this election... Is, uh, it has been called because uh, President Hugo Chavez uh, died uh, the March 5th. Uh, this is going to be a campaign very emotional, both candidates. One, Nicolás Maduro, the so-called son of Chavez, uh, he, he's using almost every day, and, and uh, you know, his affinity with Chavez is like, uh, I'm the son of Chavez, I'm 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to continue his, uh, his government, his ideas, and Capriles is uh, he's saying that Maduro is not Chavez. That, that, that's like the motto. Maduro, you are not Chavez. Uh, he's calling uh, his rival Nicolás. Nicolás is his, uh, his first name. So he's very personalized in this campaign. Huh? Nicolás, you're not Chavez. You're not going to be Chavez. And the leader, the, 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 that leadership that had Chavez in the government, and all the problems, uh, they were, uh, he was able to manage the problems with his leadership, with his uh, charisma, that uh, Maduro doesn't have. That. We're told that Maduro has mentioned Chavez 4,000 times in speeches since well, Chavez's death, that there's a website that's tracking how yeah, many times he uh, mentions Chavez. If you refresh that rate, it's, uh, uh, right now is uh, 5,391 times that uh, he has uh, said the, the name Hugo Chavez in, in public appearances in radio and TV. Since the death of the president, uh, it was 28 days ago. So uh, the website is madurodice.com. It's like Maduro says in, in Spanish. Um, yes, uh, and, the, and the, 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 the PSUV, it's the, 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 the government party, the socialist party, uh, they say almost every day we're not going to stop mention Chavez. Chavez is our father and we are representing his desire and his project to Venezuela. At first when Chavez died there you know there, there was this feeling of loss and and Chavez was it's now still trying to become uh, from Chavismo is trying to present Chavez as a Christ like the um, a martyr uh, who gave his life for the people. The, 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 it, it, that's the uh, hypothesis that the cancer was uh, inoculated, the cancer was infected on Chavez, that can be proved right now, I believe, but and we don't know if uh, Maduro is going to be able to control the government. We have a, an economy that is uh, sinking fast and faster and faster. We have uh, uh, social issues that cannot be resolved, like the violence uh, la, uh, in the street. Um, so uh, is, is Enrique Capriles Rodonsky, who is the opposition candidate, yeah. has he presented anything different from his fall campaign? We are seeing uh, the same candidate, but a different candidate. His speeches are another thing. He's... Uh, um, the, the subject, uh, even the, how do I put this, uh, the way he has presented his speeches and his uh, uh, positions are very, very sharp uh, in comparison to the, to the last year. He's uh, personalizing the campaign. He's talking like uh, more harshly. He says, Maduro, Jordan Chavez, and he's attacking the, the government. Earlier this week, mm -hmm. Capriles, in a speech, criticized the military for yeah. being on the side of the socialists and being on the side of Maduro in this election. 
this very same uh, week Chavez died, the defense minister, he's, a, he's an admiral, he said that the, the, the militaries the, the, the were going to put themselves the task to get Maduro to the office. Okay, that's what like like they, they, their task. Uh, he even said that we're not gonna uh, we're not gonna allow that the, the right wing parties, as they call, uh, are going to take over uh, Miraflores. That's the the the, the, the uh, government palace. Uh, this uh, well, obviously, um, like legal, the the, the military can't. Uh, you know, show any political uh, position. They have to be institutionalists. But uh, the, 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 the defense minister has been said this. Also, last uh, yesterday, yesterday in the morning, Capriles did a press conference, and he said, we are not the same guys like we were in October. We are not naive anymore. We are not going to take uh, the, the abuses we are not gonna allow to uh, the use of all the state power to uh, impulse this candidacy of Nicolas Maduro. So this is uh, Enrique Capriles that it's uh, open to, you know, being uh, much more aggressive. The um, he has denounced this uh, um, what is called here the ventajismo. It's like the government uses uh, public resources that they use in favor of uh, Nicolas Maduro uh, for taking voters to the polls uh, day of the elections to make uh, propaganda in the streets uh, and using the the state apparatus uh, in favor of Nicolas Maduro. This is uh, Enrique Capriles, who is not uh, naive. He, he has said that last year uh, like, like he said last year, we took so much last year. We're not, um, you know, uh, we, we don't want to make the same mistakes. Uh, the opposition in Venezuela is recognizing a lot, a lot, it has been a lot of mistakes made last campaign. Like that, that they, they, were, they were soft, they have been said. Uh, to themselves, they, they were soft with the government, with the abuses, and with uh, the electoral uh, authority, whose uh, actions benefit, uh, one way or the other, the uh, official candidacy of Nicolas Maduro. Some people would say in the United States that that's just good machine politics to get people to the polls, to be organized, but that has been the criticism from Washington, D.C., that the playing field is not equal, that Maduro has all of Chavez's political machine behind him to, to get him to this victory. Yeah, well, when they say that they are Hugo Chavez's sons, they are saying one thing that is true. Uh, one of the strategies that Chavez, uh, mm, well, uses or used in, in, in his election was to uh, put all the state apparatus in favor of his candidacy. And yes, it's uh, it's not fair because they have this, all these public resources that even legally shouldn't be uh, 
well, put the, this task, but well, they do. Even Nicolás Maduro has said, you're not voting for me, you're voting in honor of Hugo Chávez. You have to continue voting for Chávez, but it's my name on the, on the, on, on the, on the, you know, on the button. So what we've seen, though, that sympathy vote seems to be working because the polls in Venezuela have um, Capriles down by 14 points, which is even more percentage points than he lost by in, in October. Well, uh, I have seen so, uh, last uh, uh, public opinion studies that the difference is about uh, 20 points and there are uh, some so, some studies that say that the difference is going to be like 10 points. It's like they are going to repeat the, the results of, the, of last October. Thank you, Victor Amaya with Venezuela's Talqual coming to us today from Caracas. Thank you very much. We'll have more interviews next week from experts to provide more context on the Venezuelan elections. Although President Chavez died a month ago today, on March 5, 2013, Chavez continues casting a long shadow over Venezuelan politics. That's the topic of this week's Latin American Perspectives commentary. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. The funeral of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez was a massive celebration of a vitriolic foe of the United States. Virtually every country in the region, including the closest U.S. allies, sent high-level delegations to show their esteem for Chavez, who had campaigned tirelessly to end the U.S. role in the region. The acclaim and praise, though probably not intended as a deliberate snub, suggests a troubling degree of indifference to the United States. Chavez's autocratic rule and reckless spending did not merit such praise. True, he left Venezuelans less poor and unequal than when he came to power in 1999. But many other Latin American nations did the same, or better, and without a huge oil windfall, and without leaving their country's economy in shambles and undoing democratic institutions. Chavez's funeral is not the only reason for unease about Washington's relations with Latin America. Cuban ruler Raul Castro, another determined U.S. adversary, was recently elected to head CELAC, a regional institution that brings together all Latin American and Caribbean nations. And Latin American heads of state have warned Washington that, Unless Cuba is included in the hemisphere-wide summit of the Americas, they would no longer participate. No, Latin Americans have not retreated from democratic rule. It is still the overwhelming regional norm. What they have given up on is the idea of collectively defending democratic practice in countries other than their own. Regional solidarity is now a higher priority than democracy. To be sure, the United States still enjoys highly productive economic ties with most of Latin America, but politically it is drifting further and further apart. 
Whether Washington can remake the relationship is in question. A sensible reform of U.S. immigration legislation would remove a critical obstacle. So would a more flexible approach to drug policy. Even more important, for Washington to regain clout in regional affairs, it must change its policy toward Cuba. Washington cannot continue to ignore the views of every Latin American and Caribbean government all of whom stand against U.S. efforts to isolate and sanction Cuba. Because U.S. policy is so extreme, no Latin American country is willing to criticize Cuba. Chavez's association with Cuba bought him some of that immunity, with his neighbors leaving him unaccountable for his violations of democracy and human rights. The U.S. has a lot of work to do to prevent such immunity from spreading. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to our Latin American Perspective segment or any portion of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. We'll be right back with details on Guatemala's unprecedented human rights trial in a moment. Stay with us. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. For most of the past two weeks, Guatemalans have focused their attention on a trial involving human rights and history. Former dictator Efrain Rios Montt stands accused of murder and complicity in genocide for the deaths of more than 1,700 indigenous people during Guatemala's brutal civil war that ended in the mid-1990s. Human rights groups battled for more than a decade to bring these charges against the former general. We turn to Katherine Johnson, of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission for Context. Johnson's group is a D.C.-based organization with offices in Guatemala. We spoke to her via Skype. It's important because, largely because it's a huge step forward for justice in Guatemala. Uh, there, during the internal armed conflict, which lasted from 1960 to 1996 in the country, there were an estimated 200,000 people killed, including 45,000 disappeared, meaning that uh, nobody knows what happened to them or, or where, um, where they are. And now 30 years later, we're finally seeing some of these cases go forward, um, where, where justice is actually moving forward for the victims of that internal armed conflict. We're told that this is the first time that a country has... Uh, tried to prosecute a former ruler uh, on its own. So this this is also has some sort of statement about justice in Guatemala, does it not? It certainly does. It's the first time, as you mentioned, the leader is prosecuted for genocide, at least in a domestic court, a uh, former ruler. And so it's a chance for Guatemala to show that their justice system can actually function, that it that judicial independence can exist, 
um, in, in a system that's been incredibly corrupt, even after the internal armed, on, armed conflict ended. The impunity rate in Guatemala for general crimes, for homicide, example, for example, is as high as 98%. So it's a justice system that has been largely dysfunctional. And so to, to be able to be the first country that does this is, is really Guatemala showing the world that they can, they can take care of its own people, hopefully, and really create um, a, a functioning system of justice. It's a step that many of us thought would never happen, especially because um, Rios Montt was in Congress for several years. He was elected over and over again, was for a time actually the president of Congress. And this was uh, after the peace accords had been signed. So after theoretically Guatemala had achieved peace, um, the election system was so corrupt and the same powers were in place. So he was able to be uh, elected over and over again. And in Guatemala, um, elected officials have complete impunity from any any prosecution. So many of us feared that he would just be in power until he he either died or was too old to face any sort of justice. And that's what we've actually seen with the other uh, the other leaders that were charged with the same with genocide and crimes against humanity. There were two: one who was um, in power before Rios Montt, and then uh, another general as well who were charged, but have been, but their trials haven't been able to move forward because they're because of health issues that they face. And so many of us really feared that Rios Montt would just get old enough um, that that he also wouldn't be able to face trial. And these thousands and thousands of victims would never have a chance to uh, to talk about what happened to them and and really see justice for these crimes. At 86, I guess the question is that he, he's still elderly enough that health issues are, are, are still on the table here, are they not? They are, and that's that was actually um, why, supposedly, why he, even after he was charged, he wasn't sent to prison. Um, generally in Guatemala, very few people don't face prison as they're waiting for their trial to go forward. But because of his age, supposedly, he was... Um, He's been under house arrest for the last year. He was charged in uh, January of last year. And so um, instead of being in prison this whole time, he's been under house arrest. Let's talk a bit about the justice system. The Attorney General, Claudia Pazzi Paz, she's not exactly in step with the political powers that be in Guatemala, is she? No, in fact, she's uh, faced incredible campaigns of defamation, um, both in uh, by the powers within Guatemala and in the media, for example, many people have claimed that she's simply a former guerrilla fighter seeking justice, um, or or that she's really corrupt. Um, she part though part of so part of her success has also been because of the uh, International um, Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, the CSIG who has been functioning in Guatemala for several years and has worked to strengthen the, uh, the, the Ministerio Público, the public prosecutor's office. This trial is ongoing on the radio in Guatemala daily. Um, is, is there um, a palpable reaction of people to what's going on or are people paying attention? Uh, certainly our staff in Guatemala are, are following it really closely. Both of our staff there have been um, involved for decades in, in um, trying to push for justice for victims and, and in social struggles in Guatemala. Um, though, what we've also seen at the same time is a rise in attacks against human rights defenders. And so while the, the human rights community is really focused on this trial going forward, they are also, their attention is being called away. There's um, all of this concern about a, an increase of violence that happened almost exactly the same time as the trial opened. Is there a sense then that that, that is a direct reaction to the trial, a commentary that, that human rights have not won the day 
in Guatemala yet? It certainly could be. It it could be a reaction um, to the trial opening. But more generally, I think it's a reaction to human rights defenders and especially indigenous human rights defenders being really organized and and the the, the same sort of sector that's pushing forward the genocide trial. And they've been preparing for this trial for, for 10 years. Um, as they've strengthened themselves, many other movements have also recovered from the genocide that was committed against them, recovered from the, the repression, and are standing up and are standing up for their rights in many different, many different types of rights, the right to land, the right to their indigenous traditions, their indigenous languages, and, and most importantly, to make decisions about the type of development that's going on in their communities and in their, in their ancestral lands. And so both of these processes of strengthening are going on at the same time. And so I think that violence has been a reaction to both of those, sort of a, a fear by the dominant sectors in Guatemala, the, the business sector um, and, and, the, and many politicians, that they're sort of losing this dictatorial grip that they've had on power in Guatemala. Well, thank you. Catherine Johnson of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission joins us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writer Zach Cohen. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>